Boom. Folks, it's been a year. We've recorded an entire year of podcasts. We're starting another September. Uh, doing a very different topic, though. We're talking Are about- you surprising me with this? Because I we, we have not talked about this, and I was not aware this was our year anniversary episode. You're not aware this is our year. We started. You September. never mentioned it in the pre-planning, so now I feel like this was supposed to be. Like, this is like a surprise party. There's going to be guests popping up, and you're going to have a gift for me. <laughs> well, I did not do that much. I was just going to say that um, <laughs> this episode is coming out nine four twenty twenty one. Our first episode came out nine five. Uh, 2020. Uh, so yes, this is roughly a year. Um, a year after, like the day. Should we have just done big episode two in honor? We missed. No, out. we really don't need to do big like a bunch of times. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say it's very weird that we've gone from talking about Tom Hanks to talking about horror tour directors, um, modern horror tour directors, which is uh, what we are doing this month, uh, starting with the works of director Ty West. Uh, but before we do that, let's do a little last Letterbox movie. Zachy, my boy, um, what do we got? A year in, and that's what you call me now, Zachy, my boy. Uh, you, you've had to listen to me hum the song for three minutes while you just sat in the background of this chat before. Yep. Um, I just finished watching um, The Odd Couple. Weirdly, a movie about this podcast. It's about this podcast. But honestly, we're both a little bit of each. So we got to be more... Um, Stereotypical in our in our own character traits. Okay, so if you had to say look at the odd couple and say which is which, by looking at me and the way my hair is right now, I'm definitely going to be the Oscar. But I don't even know if that's fair, though. I mean, I'm like too feminine. I also have like the sensitivity of Felix. Which one of us is grumpier? Because I feel like whichever is grumpier just gets the math out. Honestly, not that grumpy in the movie. This is coming from someone who did not watch the movie. He's not really grumpy. He's just like... I've, uh, I've got to be honest. I just assume that Walter Matthau is grumpy. Always grumpy. Movie. I mean, he's like comparatively grumpy. But he's more just like a slobbish sports writer. That kind of like... He just gets overwhelmed by how like Felix is always cleaning the house. And um, I mean, I... I the well, ending okay. is like weirdly like resonant, um, and it's not spoiling. It's a, it's a comedy movie, so it's not like you're spoiling much. But that they're really 1968, so you can't spoil a 1968. Yeah, but I'm just saying because you haven't seen it. it um, I, here's the thing: I also accepted life that if I have film <laughs> discussions and people talk about a movie from 1968, that I kind of have to just suck it up and deal with it because yeah. you can't claim but, spoiler alert on a movie that's older than my parents. You can't. So, yeah, so the Odd Couple, like throughout, is is a pretty like broad comedy. Um, it's not as one note that I was worried is going to be just like the slobbish jokes being too far, but it's still very much like Felix Jack Lemon's character is is pretty much like a the wife in a relationship, and he's similar to I feel like even in some like a hot he like plays off the like femininity of his character being that. So in some like a hot he's like. Playing like he's the girlfriend to the, that one rich guy and making a lot of jokes like that. And now he's like basically turning into a wife. So it's like jokes of look at this man acting like the, a female archetype. Um, you know, 50s, 60s humor, but like done somewhat smarter. Um, but for the most part, I'm like it's just a pure comedy. And so there's like just two lines right at the end that even though I think the the kind of thematic connections or like character connections that it was trying to make the whole time should have been more obvious. I needed these last two lines that they were both people going through divorces and it was really all about the whole long gain over their divorces and past it. Cause they like at the end call each other, their wife's name, like it, it was all mirroring what their um, past marriages were. They, which is, I think they never hit that too hard until that last line. I think in a way that's smart, letting the comedy like live. So that definitely took it up a notch. I say I never really, is, I don't find it like laugh out loud because I think that broad humor is kind of stuck in the 60s. Like things just got a little more intelligent. Um, but it's still like pretty pleasant and easy to watch. And, you know, I, I, uh, something I kind of needed this week just to kind of calm down to just a nice, pleasant watch. Um, so enjoyable. I mean, it's Jacqueline and Math out if you like love the chemistry and seeing them play off each other. You know, they're a classic duo for a reason, and it's pretty enjoyable. So I've not seen this so we just talked about. Um, I did read the Wikipedia page, which says that Jack Lemon is the neurotic meat freak and Math out is the fun loving slob. 
And I feel like that makes me the Jack Lemon and you the little Yeah, Lemon. that's what I'm saying. That's definitely more. But I'm also I said the feminine and fragile type that Jack Lemon is. See, also. I think that I think if you take that archetype, we're Lemon. I'm Lemon. Your math out. I think if you walked around with us for like five minutes, you'd be like Lucas. Your math out. <laughs> you're Lemon. You had like an hour long conversation. Like in appearance, you're the Lemon, and spirit, I'm the Lemon. Exactly. Um, I actually don't think I've—I don't know if I've ever seen a Lemon and Mathout movie. Uh, nah. Maybe not. I definitely saw uh, grumpy, grumpier old men in theaters. I think in like the mid or late nineties, whenever it came out. That's crazy. Is, there never was a grumpiest old man, right? It only went to grumpier. Oh my god! I was a, I was in the. Yeah, no, that, that looks right. I was trying to figure out if I've seen any of these movies. So it would have been 95. I would have been six years old. I'm like, grumpy old man. Let's fucking hit it. This is uh, my attempt to quickly look up what movies they were in together has failed miserably. It's like I have not seen any of these movies. There's the fortune cookie. Grumpy old man. Grumpy old man. Isn't there another Billy Wilder movie that I'm forgetting about? Out to see the front page. The front page is not water, but this is great podcasting. They're really like very, they made a lot of money doing these movies. Mm -hmm. Really very popular. All right. You only make movies. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen any of their movies together, which is like, it feels like I should probably remedy at some point. You're definitely about to spend the next two nights just watching Mathel Lemon movies. You can see it in your eyes. No. Because here's the thing you always make fun of me for being a completionist. The important part of being a completionist is I have to start what I'm doing first. If I had watched one, then it might feel more. I'm also not, I tend not to be as a completionist when it comes to actors or directors. It's more like series. It's things that are so. Yeah, the, the like worst way to be completionist is watching a bunch of shitty sequels. Yeah, it's, it's not always the, the most new. What was that? You were making fun of me for watching something. Well, you made it fun of you for Battle Royale, and I think you've made fun of me for other stuff. Because you like watched Battle Royale, too. I did watch Battle Royale, too. It's called prepping for the podcast. I, yeah, I mean, I would be honest. I was probably not going to watch that because they're not that connected unless, like, I had a reason. Um, my last Letterbox movie is... Uh, I'm going to talk about three films at once because they are so closely connected. And so Cheating. No, I mean, you'll understand when I, when, I, when I explain. So I watched the Fear Street trilogy, Fear Street Part 1, mm -hmm. 1994, Part 2, 1978, and Part 3, 1666, um, which are... Uh, I don't think you haven't seen these, right? Yeah, I'm probably not going to watch it. I think you'd actually enjoy. They're pretty fun, like plays on like you know horror tropes. Uh, the first one's sort of a like attack by monsters movie. The second one is a camp movie, and the third one is like a you know witch burning movie. Um, it essentially, it is characters through time tracing back the origins of a cursed town. Um, you get to see the characters play the the actors play different characters in different time frames. Um, I gave all the movies three and a half stars, uh, mostly because I couldn't really tell. Like I enjoyed all of them. Quite a lot, but I didn't. Uh, nothing set each one apart from the other. I don't know how I'm going to rank them. Off to figure that out. Um, they're just. It was just a lot of fun. It, it, it's it's rare we get something um, that is a trilogy, that is just self-contained. And also, they were released in three weeks. All three of them released back to back to back, um, which was kind of awesome because that's really like the way you should watch them is just you know quickly one after the other. Um, they're not brilliant filmmaking, but they have some talented actors in it, a lot of like fun performances, uh, some cool monsters, some cool kills, some cool scenes. Um, and honestly, even like if you love horror, I think you'll enjoy watching them. If you like some of the trappings of horror, but also like the other aspects of them, I think you'll enjoy them. Uh, they're just like a lot. They were just a lot of fun. Uh, I think tracing back the origin was really cool and just just a really fun, enjoyable time. Uh, it was also nice to just like watch a franchise. It was like here's all three of them. There's not really like, you know, they're all connected. They all kind of work perfectly together. And uh, that's it. They're just getting the three. You get to enjoy them and you kind of get to move on with your life. Uh, really fun, kind of small, uneventful, but really enjoyable uh, little, little trilogy that they dropped on Netflix over the summer. So I finally got them those. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what will hold me back is that's three movies and a lot of dedication for something that I'm, I'm probably going to end up in. Like, yeah, that was pleasant enough. Um, or fun, sorry, for murder, murder movies. Um, 
I I wonder if they do anything like that again. That kind of what it's it's essentially a mini series that they just divided and, and released over you know a mm-hmm. a semi expanded time um, rather than one sitting. On um, that, it's, it's by all you know notes, it seemed to be successful, um, like pretty successful for Netflix. Um, and I wonder if they try to repeat that and do these other kind of three four part movie series that they release in short times. Honestly, I wish they would because I feel like this is a better format for Netflix than like the 10, 12 episode series they sometimes sort of do where like, you know, the constant joke about Netflix is they make a show and every every show has three episodes you wish you could just skip because they always seem to elongate their plot. And I really kind of enjoyed this. They're like, we're going to make three, you know, 100 minute movies. They're actually pretty tight. You don't really yeah. watch them and go, oh my God, could they go cut this down? And like one after another, it was like, it was almost like somebody made like a really, really just enjoyable quality like trilogy of TV movies that just dropped them out one at a time. It, yeah. And I'm not the audience for these two series I'm about to talk about. So maybe I'm I'm uh, misinformed of, of how successful they were. But I do I, – I feel like both Tall the Boys I Loved and Kissing Booth kind of died in buzz by the time they like released their third movie each. Um, that I wonder if they did those trilogies similar to that and released them all in a month, made them all, released them all together, and they would build off the hype. If it had a bit helped it, you know. I think it would have. I think the one week is actually great because a week between each of these movies, like I didn't watch them in the moment, but if you had, if you'd had grabbed the first one the first day it was released, you and anybody else who wanted to get on board with the franchise had an entire week to watch the first one and an entire week to watch the second one. Um, and I think that was like really good for word of mouth is that some people probably were really knew about it right away, but this is not necessarily like the highest publicity series. So, but, but having the week between them allowed anybody who heard about it after the first one or heard about the buzz to catch up really quickly. Um, I will say my last thing is that I think if you're a fan of stranger things, um, fear street will be kind of down your alley. That's like Netflix's audience. They, they aim for 12-year-olds at some, at some level. 12-year-olds is enough entertainment for older people as well. And but. most of the most of the characters, lead characters in this, are sort of in the 14 to 18 range. So, like, I, this was actually a really smart choice in terms of, I think it just fits their general audience, and it fits something that's already on the surface. Like, I think you will aesthetically will, if you like Stranger Things, you'll like this. Yeah, um, it's kind of weird that they didn't wait till October to release this because they do this special like Halloween release in Netflix where they release like a movie or two every week to celebrate Halloween. They have all these horror movies lined up and they release this in August. It seemed like it would have been a perfect like buzz builder for their Halloween things. Yeah, but it also I, I mean, it, it also feels like a summer movie when you watch it because it, it, it's, it, it's not hardcore horror. It has horror elements, but this is not necessarily the series that's going to have the really blood. Like, you know, it has some bloody scenes. It has some scary stuff. But this is not necessarily as hardcore horror as I feel like they try to lead. They tend to lean into when they get to Hollywood. Yeah. All right. Um, Talked about some horror. Let's talk about some more horror. Um, Let's talk about Ty West's The House of the Devil. Ty West, pretty cool name, right? Is is a good director named Ty West. It's, a, it's definitely unique. I, I'm going to look this up. Is this actually his real name? As long as I can tell, is it Tyson? No, I, he literally seems to be his his actual real name, birth name, legal name is Ty West. It's also um, like very baseball player-y. Like you can easily have like second base for the Houston Astros, Ty West. I mean, it also could be like a rapper. It could be a boxer. Like, it feels like a lot of things. It has, yeah. It has a weird has aesthetic a coolness to it that you don't see with a lot of names. Yeah. Could be a porn star, Ty West. Yeah. And I mean, six foot schlong. That's the same with my porn. I'm really bad at naming porn. So I'll try that again. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's talk about, let's, before we jump into a plot summary of his film, let's talk about him a little bit. This is a director that we chose, I think, mostly because we wanted to do somebody who was a little bit less mainstream because horror often has uh, a reputation as being more of an indie thing. Uh, yeah, historically, working on tighter budgets being something where they're being creative out of the need for efficiency. And, we, and we're going to talk about some directors uh, later on in this month who like got really big budgets, even like, like you know, comparatively from the beginning. He's a guy who basically only does stuff he writes he basically writes directs and edits he often acts in his own films 
he often produces his own thing. The one thing that he did for somebody else was the thing called Cabin Fever 2 Spring Fever, which is a sequel movie. Uh, he's basically disowned it and said it's not his. It came out the same year as the film we're talking about. Um, his movies, like, they are all made for under a million dollars. They don't gross anything. They're not released by major, major studios, I believe. Um, Can, House of the did Devil. Did you do a Netflix just, movie? I don't no. think so. I'm He's like, I mean, this one is distributed by like MPI Media Group. One of them was like, I think Innkeepers was like Magnolia. Um, he's also, if you look at his career, he's done like segments on VHS and the ABCs of Death. So he's kind of worked on other stuff. He also does some work as an actor. He and then basically for the much of his recent career, he's basically just working on episodes of TV shows that seem. That's to probably his money. That's like his paycheck. Well, I don't know if it's even his paycheck, or I don't know. He he genuinely might have trouble making another film after in the in the Valley of Violence twenty sixteen is the last movie he made, and it made it got just like like it made nothing. It made like sixty one thousand yeah. dollars. Like basically, it made like a normal person's. It made like a person's salary. Like that's not good for your movie. Um, that even at the price he makes movies is you know. That's still gonna hurt. Um, he basically, he I think right now he's working on a film called X. Um, the plot is currently unknown. Um, has a couple bigger names in it for normal for his plot. It's Brittany Snow, Mia Goth, Kid Cudi. Yeah, I feel like I recognize some of these people. Like this is actually like people who seem to have, but there's also people who I think have shown interest in uh, like horror stuff before. Mia Goth for sure, yeah. Looking at some of the other people's uh, filmographies, yeah. And so what? And yeah, so why you look it up to the other, you know, representative of him being part of the indie horror scene is you said you mentioned VHS and ABC to death, and VHS definitely is like the definitive, I think, indie horror, you know, movie of the past ten years or like fifteen years in a way. Of, right, really where that scene is because it's all the directors that scene taking part in this. Adam Wingard, Joe yeah. Swanberg, yeah, like for several of the people that like you could you could have talked about in a month about horror. Well, I guess not Swanberg, but people who are uh, directors. And I think has a pretty good, like, solid cult fan base for that movie as well. It's easily one like I thought about doing. Like, do we just do like all of the horror indie uh, tours in one movie of VHS? But I, I don't want to be that broad with it. Um, but that, that I said that's representative because you, you, he seemingly to me, maybe this new movie we're looking up, um, violates this, but uh, he, he like he doesn't have much interest in, in making like a bigger budget feature. Same thing with Joe Swamberg and you know, all those other guys. Adam Wingard started to show, you know, he just did Kong versus Godzilla, so he seemed like someone that was more, you know, in the and interested, um, but then went the other way, so maybe I, I'm assuming. Um, interest over what is really just feasibility and what's offered to him. Um, but like, Joe Swanberg never seems like a guy that wants to make a big budget movie. He just likes making it work. He likes the like DIY, DIY aspects of it. And that's where Ty West, I would you know assume to, as well. To me, it feels like it's about control. Like, I think he likes them. I think he was really hurt. Like, looks like he was really frustrated by the prop, like the prop, the, the process of working on somebody else's film with Cabin Fever 2, and you look at the rest of his career, he's making super cheap movies where he is writing, directing, and editing them. And even this new movie, X, that he has coming, it has, you know, Sam Levinson is producing, so that's a little bit more money behind it, and it's going to be distributed by A24. But that could still be a relatively, you know, A24 is, you know, it's an indie studio. It's not going to give him, you know, it's unlikely he's going to get some kind of huge amount of money from them, you know. They, you know, they'll make, you know, at the, at the top end, uh, maybe you'll get, you know, $10 million or $20 million to make your movie. You know, Zola that came out this year, that got like $5 million. Um, to me, it really feels like he wants to have control over his things and he really refuses to, to sacrifice that control. And um, so it is like interesting that everything he's working on truly does feel like just a pure creation of his own mind. Like this is a film that he wrote. And then he shot it, and then he edited it. So, like, there is literally not a part of the process of the creation of this film that he is not involved in. Like, this, this and this is an example of a film that is 
100% the creation of the director. Like, you know, there's a lot of movies where people, like, you know, there are a lot of horror directors who get, especially in the modern era, get sucked into kind of the franchises. You know, you have the whole James Wan spin-off universe where it's not only him directing these specific movies, but also like people he, you know, recruits and starts giving movies to. And, you know, as over as this decade has gone along, horror has actually become a relatively profitable area. So they've started to grab, you know, talented young directors, say, here's $20 million, make a sequel to our horror movie that we made for 10 that grossed 150. And that's kind of like the new thing. And Taiwan seems to be just very much a vestige of the older type of horror making where it is a individual director focus. And this is why, in some ways, we put him on here as an auteur is that he is, one, clearly on a tour and that he has control over his movies. Um, yes. And he's also a guy who has literally only worked in the genre of horror. And he's also different than some of our people. Going the Valley of Violence is the exception. It's a Western. I mean, I think it actually counts as a horror Western, sort of in the vein of like Bone Tomahawk or something. Um, but he's also different than some of the people we're going to talk about later in that he had to kind of make his career for himself. He was never given, you know, the options that some of the modern directors get. You know, like even with the speed, just because of the rise of places like A24, you know, there can be a young director who has an idea for a film and they might get 10 to 15 million dollars to do that idea, especially if they want to do something more creative. Um, you know, a lot of these other guys just they never got that opportunity. Um, so, yeah, Ty West, very clearly an indie guy and also somebody who's uh, we couldn't. We also struggled when we were picking the directors from modern, modern auteur, or modern auteur horror directors just to like, we couldn't pick all the people that are, like, I think if you thought of them, you would think of all these people from the last five years who've done one to two movies. Yeah. We couldn't just the do buzziest of the directors. We had to make some choices and say, well, we can't pick all these people with just two movies. Um, so Ty West felt like somebody who was uh, clearly fit the qualifications, but also is from a different um, era of uh, filmmaking. We try to do two guys who are more prolific and then two guys who are more uh, recent and somewhat higher buzz. Yeah. In, you know, the classic definition of a tour having a um, kind of ideas or themes that run, run through your filmography, kind of an obsession in a way um, that goes through. And, and I think his obsession other than the, is basically the genre itself and the the, you know, history of it. And a lot of his movies are are paying a lot of homage, or and just trying to be part of these like old '70s scenes. Like he's like, I wish I got to make movies in the '70s. So I'm going to make a movie now that could have been made in the '70s, which is what House of the Devil is. It's basically part of that scene, and that's really what seems like his obsession is making these kind of classic style horror movies, um, bringing them back into the modern day. But even House of the Devil, the way it looks, you know, it's even set in the '70s. It's really, you know, aiming for that that kind of babysitter era uh, uh, of horror movies of the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, it's definitely, if you watch horror movies, if you have an understanding of knowledge of horror movies, you will start recognizing there are literally, there are shots in the film that have homage to classic 70s and 80s horror. Um, and really, like, Mary's Baby is like the biggest... Um, like influence in a way, the, just plot the movie, wise. The movie literally starts with an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. um, with the idea that, like, you know, that's a very classic. Like, this is based on a true story. It's exactly what comes before things like Texas Chainsaw. Uh, there's clearly evidence of Halloween. Definitely, some of the shots at the yeah, end was Halloween. very reminiscent of a Halloween like sequence at basically the end of Halloween. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of like haunted house stuff. There's a lot of like slasher stuff. There's a probably lot of a lot of references that are too deep for us to even know. Ty West just really shows himself as like a true fan of the genre, and I think he's playing off a lot of movies that only like the the deepest of fans really like know. I'm sure you could find a list somewhere on like a horror based website yeah. that has the 70 movies referenced in this. I'm um, sure you're googling this right now. <laughs> I'm actually not. Well, let's do. Let's do. We'll do. I'll do that while we talk about a plot summary. Do you want to start yeah, the yeah, plot yeah. summary? Do you want me to start the plot summary? Uh, so we have, um, I'm not going to say any character names. I also don't know her actress name. So we're just going to call her. There is a young woman, um, college student. Jocelyn Donahue. Thank you. Jocelyn Donahue. Is that the, that's the actress? That's the actress. She plays Samantha okay. Hughes. Yeah. So Samantha um, is a you know young college student looking for work. She pulls a flyer for his babysitter position. 
um, you know, calls the number and it automatically is already like a little eye. Just like, no, we like need someone now. They they call him back right away. The despair, uh, the desperateness is, is like evident in the voice. Like how immediate this must be. That kind of starts to um, put some red flags to her and put some red flags to the audience. And most importantly, raise some red flags to the great Gatagurig, who she is her friend that she meets for pizza. And like, no, this person's weird, um, especially after they um, kind of hold her up. Um, she was like supposed to like meet them and they never um, make the meeting happen. Um, and Gatagurig's like, you can't talk to these people. They're weird. They're flaky. Um, you don't know what you're getting into. Um, but as she gets called back, she... Like, I really need the money. Um, and naively goes to what is like a rich mansion that was like used as their excuse to trust. It's like they live in a rich area. They must be trustworthy. Um, so she goes there with Greta Gerwig giving her a drive um, to where then it is revealed um, by the old man who is, uh, I only know him as the voice in Anomalisa for like all the characters that aren't um Francis Dollarhide. They could do it. Fairy. What? This is Tom Noonan plays Francis okay. Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy in Michael Mann's Manhunter. He's absolutely fantastic. Sure. Okay, I don't know what the character name is. The Tooth He's the Fairy. Bad guy. Okay, got it. Anyways, to me, Tom Noonan is the voice of every character that is in David Thewlis and Anomalisa. Um, so Tom Noonan, who like surprisingly just looks large, is he like six foot eight? I really need this information. He's six foot five. He is a uh, very yeah. tall, he, very he, thin man. Yeah. He has a. He is also uses the same. The physique is also very much on display in Manhunter. He has just a very. He has a weird physicality to him where he feels too tall and too thin, like yeah. artificially thin for his height. In that and his just like kind of naturally sad face, face really, and like voice really that's like too and soft. His voice really sounds like it's melting. Um, all adds to the kind of creepiness. Um, and, and especially with the desperateness that he's also now acting in person um, to that character. Um, so he reveals to her that it, it, they actually don't have kids. So I'm like, once you see him, he's like 70 on, on death's door. I'm like, you're pretty sure there's no kids, right? Um, and it's actually to take care of his wife's mom to help make the wife feel more comfortable as they are out. Um, that she's not going to leave the house. And this is when Gabriel Gurwitz was like, screw this shit. You can't be here. They lied to you. This all seems weird. You're taking care of an old woman. Um, no one wants to take care of old people. They mentioned that because of the um, like risk concerns um, involved with it. Um, and so Greta Gerwig bounces. Um, she never makes it back to her place. She gets uh, stopped by the one young Satan worshiper as part of their team. He goes. And honestly, I think this is like the creepiest part of the movie. It's like having a conversation, and once he realizes she's not the babysitter, just really quickly, the abruptness of it is, I find pretty startling, um, shoots her in the face, right in the car. Um, so the first sign that something is wrong to our you know, main character, I forgot her name already, Samantha? That's correct. <laughs> okay, good. I'm proud of myself. Hey, uh, Samantha calls um, her to talk about pickup times or whatever, and there's no pickup, and repeatedly there's no pickup. Um, so she, like, tries to just hang around the house. She does some great dancing. Um, you know, more creepy shit happens. Um, she orders pizza, and it's the one young Satan worshiper that actually delivered um, the pizza and then is, like, spying on her through the window. Um, until when she really starts to, you know, lose it by the sound she hears. And what else happens of her, like, getting some? Well, she starts um, becoming suspicious of the actions. Uh, she does, like, the classic... Uh you know, final girl horror movie thing where they start, you know, nosing around in oh, yeah, places maybe. they shouldn't necessarily goes into. Um, and then she... She calls the number that, the number that gave her for emergencies, right? And it was disconnected. Yes. And then she uh, she calls 911. She passes out because of drugs in the pizza. This is the last five minutes of the movie where she like passes out. It's a lot of her hanging around the house. It moves at a real specific much speed. Yeah. Yes, and then she uh, finds herself uh, strapped down on like a witch's symbol, and they pour cut. Somebody cuts their hand and puts blood into a gold skull and tries to pour it in her mouth. Um, and then she escapes, and that 
stabs the character who I name is Mother, uh, which is sort of a creepy like uh, witch thing. And then she also kills uh, the son and the wife of Tom Union. And then uh, she runs out and uh, she talks to Victor, which is the Tom Union character. And he's like, uh, I'm just a messenger, which I assume we're putting from him, which we were bringing to the devil. And uh, you can kill me. Basically, she threatens him with a gun. She says, you can kill me. Uh, it doesn't matter. And it's too late. Uh, and she shoots herself in the head. And then we uh, see a little bit of a TV broadcast, and uh, they talk about like what happened with the eclipse because this is uh, one of the biggest. There's an eclipse also, yeah. There's an eclipse happening this night, and at the end of the end of the end of the film, she wakes up, her head's in bandages, and her nurse says, "You'll be fine, uh, both of you," uh, presumably saying that she's like got some kind of de demonic baby inside of her. The nurse doesn't know it's demonic, I assume, but she's mentioning that there is a she is pregnant. I think it's unclear if the nurse is. Uh, if, if, if I think it's a little bit malevolent, but just the way the nurse is interacting with her scenes. So you're uh, saying scary. the nurse is the nurse to baby Satan's OBGYN that this is all a Satan satanic hospital that they haven't. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's not unsurprising to believe that there are more people involved in this whole satanic thing than just the three people living no. in the house. It's okay. The three of them living in a house and that one random young guy that we get no explanation of what his connection is to him. He's their son. Is he? He's according to the Wikipedia. Okay. Kind of makes sense. So it's just a family ordeal. Or Do you think that this is a budgetary? It has to be a budgetary straight. You get four people and not this big, you know, 30 person call because then you don't have to pay for more people. I also just think it is scarier if it is, it is scarier to believe that three people well three people and like mother so assumingly three she generations. counts she's half person half like owl at this point well i mean this is like this is a, <laughs> this she to me feels like an incredibly clear homage to grandfather in texas chainsaw massacre as the like, yeah. crazed demonic half alive half dead person like that feel to me feels like that, almost a direct yeah. reference there that her like gift to say and have a life her life one longer than it should I actually think that I think the I think it is a budgetary thing, but I don't think it's also also scarier to believe that four people have made all these different people disappear. You know, this is the one scene where she comes across all the pictures of the past victims. I think it's scarier to believe that those four people have done this all rather than like a large cult. That's actually I feel like it's less scarier in the long run. Um, because that's also adds to the fear of like the suburbia that any ordinary family nearby can just be their own satanic cult. It doesn't have to be a bigger conspiracy. <laughs> Well, this is a real 1980s fear, right? You know, the, the, yeah. the satanic worshippers, the like, you know, Satan is near and like. And it starts with the, the like little um, speech that bubble. I don't know. What do you call those? The blurbs like before yeah. where it tries to connect it to reality and saying like this many people believe that satanic cults are like everywhere or something. Yeah. It's a pretty funny statistic. I don't remember. I'll, I'll try to see if I can find um the opening credits to this. But that definitely know. connects it to where the fear was that um, satanic panic of the 1980s. Well, I think there's also just always a percentage of the population that is willing to believe that there's something horrible happening or is going to happen or is near to happening. Um, people are often... Fear makes people believe stuff that doesn't make sense, and I think this kind of plays into that idea, except in this case it does actually happen to be true. Um We've talked about a lot of the connections uh, as we went through the plot summary. Um, I do think there's some interesting stuff going on uh, from a production standpoint. Did you notice how much worse the movie looks before they get to the house of you know the, the family versus like when it's just the college stuff? Like the college stuff looks. I almost wonder if they changed cameras during shooting or something because it just the yeah, quality of the it's and grainier. The, very grainy it's kind of it's crappily lit and it just i can't tell the if sound is a little echo echoier too yeah it is very weird i almost wonder if they saved like I, that to me feels almost like a really that's a that's a financial there so like what's the cheapest way we can shoot all this stuff that i think it really could matter. be purposeful too because there's some like b-movie qualities to like the lack of consistency like that's what like grindhouse the tarantino stuff played a lot with that in their own movies as homages so i think this is like almost maybe a more subtle version of paying homage to the, the the inconsistency of quality. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think that I think it was also a, a financial choice that they cared more about what was going on um, 
at the house with the final stuff then they care about the setup um it does a lot of the sort of uh classic horror stuff it sets up the main character as sort of a good girl versus like the kind of slutty trashy roommate um, i don't okay you're adding a lot to greta gerwig's character that's no, not no, no. i'm not talking about gerwig i'm not track. talking about gerwig oh the gerwig. roommate yeah i'm not about the roommate gerwig is not the roommate the roommate yeah it that is a weird like connection because they don't do much with her other than her having sex in the room but you, she's not a character but I think the point is that you're trying to really set the contrast. And even the contrast between Gerwig and the main character also exists as well. Um, or, or just to put her in the light of that kind of virginal innocent. But, it, but it's very much like the Halloween where like, you know, the main character in this is our Laurie Strode. And it's not like any bracket in Halloween is like the worst character or some kind of terrible person. But she's certainly more open and freer and a little bit less held down by like the morality of the time than the main character is. And... um. So that happens. We have a really tiny cameo from uh, Dee Wallace as a woman who is uh, renting her room, which sort of sets off the uh, the reason she eventually takes the, the job the off in the first place is that she needs the money so she can move away from her you know terrible roommate and uh, yeah. into a uh, like an apartment that's better. And also sets the tone on how people are just like a little more trusting and naive in the eighties. Cause even then I thought she was going to be something like that lady was sketchy as fuck. She was like, Oh, like I don't need your deposit. And there's too much like inconsistencies in, in the procedure of it all that she was willing to go by that. I feel like she was running the Satan house and just trying to get someone in there, but which isn't at all part of the story. But I think that, kind of know of like you're a little unsettled by how the lack of systematicness and and that procedure is which i think is just like part of life in the 80s yeah that, that leads you to believe that when she's taking this like babysitting job with little information and you know never being these people that it kind of puts you back in that more laid back society of just trusting and accepting yeah it really does help you understand why this girl would go to a house get lied to have like a bunch of just creepy kind of weird looking people in a creepy weird looking house way out in the woods and still just be like yeah this is like totally normal why would i i, I never get to see the woman i'm supposedly watching like that there's so many sketchy details but you're right that does silly set it up as like yeah she just kind of did you notice how sketchy the apartment thing was or is this just like me and like, no it was cat? totally weird and then she makes yeah. the weird there's a there's a the final line she says to her before she walks away is like i just have to deal with the current occupant Mm-hmm. Like, like there's a lot of like i don't think i, I think that the character do you think that like, there's that actually if she ended up going to that apartment that would also be a satanic call and she just like neither either path she took would have led her to the same fate no i think i honestly think the apartment was just like yeah i, I, I think i think i think you're watching a horror movie so you start reading into everything um yeah more than sure. necessarily is intended which is like part of the, the purpose of a horror film um i think it was all intentional to make that a little uncomfortable yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're just trying to they're trying to make you start looking for things that are not there so that you start maybe ignoring the things that are there. Um at that point, I really like Tom Newman in this. I I, I just I love his physicality. He has a really we talked about this earlier, but like he, his frame is interesting. He has like he always looks like he is somebody who is like withholding food from himself, like starving himself using some kind of substance to like keep himself artificially thinner. He always has like a really like sallow look. He never looks like thin because that's naturally where his body weight should. He always looks like thinner than he should be. Like he's not eating enough or he's doing something weird. And that yeah. combined to the fact that he is this huge man with this incredibly quiet voice is uh, I, I think just an amazing, it, it's just sort of a perfect for horror movies. He has like a really great um, aesthetic for them. Just like the combination of those two factors makes yeah. him always kind of interesting and engaging on screen that and the fact he's like he's a very talented actor who should have worked a lot more and what's you know very important about his performance is that he essentially is the big bad in a way like he's the patriarch of the family he's the whore looming over the whole last you know 50 minutes or an hour he's on screen for like 10 minutes and does not do anything like heinous or um, evil until the last five minutes when they, you know, flash and she's being held in the call that reveal. So it's just that like 10 to 15 minutes of the interview of him just being so unsettling as you, as you described 
that that leads that to the suspicion it overhangs the whole like next half hour she's just hanging the house his identity and that he set up it is looming like a shadow like you just know something's up you don't trust him he doesn't have to be on screen to be terrifying just the idea of of that meeting was enough to terrify yeah he's just like he even like in throughout the film I don't think he actually commits any acts of violence at the end of the film. It's the other characters that. No, it's 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 Fox Al Grandma. It's Grandma. It's the son. It's even the wife who do all the things. He's just sort of this weird like. He's like the orchestrator. He's almost just seems like a wife pleaser too. He's just like I need to to do it for my wife. But the true the wife actually the devil. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, he's really like the true believer who's just like I'm going to. Like, there's a weirdly creepy aspect to the final sequence where he's even like, it doesn't matter what you do at this point. He's already come. I'm just a messenger. Like, even just, like, the fact that he so clearly isolates it from himself as a person is just uh, creepy. It's weird. It's off-putting. But it's also kind of great because he's just, he's very, very, very good at this. Um, I don't really think have anything else to say about the other people in the movie. Are we not going to talk about Greta Gerwig? <laughs> Well, we can talk about her in a second. Um, I was going to say the main characters. I just think that um, they're cast purely because they fit the archetype. Like, Jocelyn Donahue as Samantha is sort of just, she has the look to play uh, a horror movie final girl, kind of virginal good girl. Like that's that, But like I feel yeah. like I don't think she's particularly talented. I don't think she's particularly great in the role. She's but I think she just good. she is cast Talent. purely because she's her job is to play you know, a specific type, like, archetype. She, and she has the look of someone who could have been that 70s innocent, yeah, final girl. And then, like, the mom, who is um, Mary Ronanov, Ronov? not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, she kind of just has kind of the creepy... Um, it's a makeup performance. She, the performance is all in the, the design of her. Yeah, and the same thing with the mother. Like this is outside of two people. Like I don't. Well, actually, outside of three people, you basically you don't see these these people in other other. I mean, you can also count the son because he just has the one scene of him just seeming like an innocent guy in the in the side. It's an important scene with him and Greta Gerwig. I mean, he's his performance is he's pretty creepy in that scene. To be honest, yeah. Um, He just kind of like I mean, he's the classic kind of horror character who comes on and he just. He, he seems up to no good and kind of creepy from the beginning. And then he kind of does the, it's a very classic horror thing to have a character come on, seem creepy initially, sort of have a little bit of a conversation and seem more normal. And, and then sort of cause you as the audience member to stop wondering why he's doing something weird in the first place. And then it results in like a final end, which is typically violent and dangerous. Um, but he's essentially the muscle. So in some ways, if, if the scary aspects you find are the actual like physicality of it all, he's the part that adds the, the fear of the actual acts himself. Not to uh, spoil future shows, but he's essentially the Caleb Landry Jones of this family. I think Landry Jones is a much better version of that. Character. Yes, he's a be- this is a slighter version, but the person that's out there just like doing the like handwork to like make sure everything is clean and the yeah, actual physical murdering of people. Well, it is interesting. Again, I keep, I, I don't know why I keep going back to this. It does really parallel. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre keeps coming up in my mind. It's just like, even the relationship between the four of them kind of. Uh, like embracing of each other's evil. Well, just like that family, the Sawyers have the kind of crazy old person who seems half dead and is like, you know, artificially aged. They have the muscle character. They have the crazy character and they have the character who initially seems helpful and safe and then turns more malicious. You know, there really is like, you could almost compare Tom Noonan's character to the cook, um, the mom character to the hitchhiker, um, you know, grandpa to, the mother and then you know leatherface to the son there is like a weird it does feel like it's playing into these um and that's not unique to that movie but also just like horror films in general tend to have that kind of like structure of a, of a team of uh villains working together um d wallace plays the landlady i feel like the only reason d wallace plays the landlady is because they wanted somebody who was somewhat recognizable and i think that's 
it's sort of i think in some ways was cast because they wanted to do like the flip-flop because if you watch cd wallace at the beginning of the film you're like well she's going to be part of this movie and then she's not um yeah. lena dunham voices the 911 operator which i did not catch in the moment watching this film there's another one that i missed i'm forgetting who it is um the director plays a teacher in the film are you uh and then you want to talk about gerwig um i definitely want to talk about gerwig i'm missing something else okay um I think you're missing me. I mean, so, so Ty West, you know, connected to, um, no, I'm blanking. We literally said this name six times in the show. Joe Swanberg. Thank you. Joe Swanberg. And that, you know, very low budget DIY scene that often gets, um, I would say dismissed as Bumblecore. Uh, I think a name they kind of embrace, but also, um, just because of the lack of script that often Swanberg and some of these directors would work with to kind of come up with a more natural take. Um, it would, they would kind of mumble their way through their lines because it was supposed to be more naturalistic. And Greta Gerwig, um, who was a big part of that scene before um, Greenberg and like Noah Baumbach, um, you know, brought her a little more in mainstream, um, that she's definitely bringing that energy into this movie. She's giving like a pretty straightforward mumblecore um, performance when I think, you know, Tom Newton and all those horror things are a little more polished in a way that we were like used to with, um, you know, the horror genre. Um, but I just like love that energy. And she's just like so naturalistic, everything she's doing down right down to just like how she's eating pizza. It's really like puts a modern step from those 70s horror movies of just like she's just seems like a real human and is like a goofball um and honestly in a lot of ways you think she's going to be that kind of like hypersexual friend that gets punished but she's like she does get punished but she's like a solid loyal friend and a good character and she's just like the the siren She's the audience surrogate. She's the audience surrogate in a lot of ways of like the don't go in that house, the don't go in that room. Um, And almost in a way, as far as, you know, what that's trying to do as as a horror device is saying, you as the audience who knows not to do this still aren't safe as she still gets um, murdered before the end. And nobody's safe whether you're smart enough to realize it or not. But my main thing I want to talk to about is I just, I just love that naturalistic energy. Um, I still think she has mainstreamed that style of acting in a way that I really appreciate um, throughout. And it's, it's, it's great watching some, some, you know, normal woman eat pizza in the grossest way possible in the grossest and realest way possible. It is interesting. It's an interesting time in her career because she has, at this point, she's worked with Swanberg three times. Yeah, they directed a movie together. Once co-directing, yeah. once co-writing, and then once just as an actor. She hasn't worked with Baumbach at this point. It's next year, right? Yeah, 2010 is Greenberg. Greenberg is the next year after this. She has a... She's basically worked with um, any roles that are like you remember to her up to this point are either Swanberg or the Duplass brothers. Everything else is sort of... Yeah. Like literally, and I'm not even joking. People forget how much of a staple of that indie scene she really was of the mumble horse scene. She's done like eight movies up to this point. The four with Swanberg or the Duplasses involved have Wikipedia pages. The four without don't have anything. Like they're not famous in any respect. Um, And from this point on, she has like, it's honestly kind of crazy how long it takes for her to even get to like, even somewhat fame. Like, I mean, Greenberg hey, is not her big fan. try at being in big mainstream blockbusters was Arthur. Do you remember that? The Arthur no, strings, no strings attached. In She's a small part. No strings attached. But but like saying, honestly, that's good. like the first time she does anything kind of roughly famous. And then, I mean, even the rest of her career, she never. Wasn't really Arthur does. before No Strings Attached? Same year. No Strings Attached is first though. Um, and then she, you know, carves her own path in a way that was perfect for her. Well, and then she also gets involved in a relationship, which also becomes hugely influential on her career yeah mutually fruitful for both of them creatively yes one yeah writing and um, acting yeah no i like her in this and um i do think that one of the funniest comparisons is comparing her coming out of that mumblecore movement to tom noonan who's like a longtime tv actor and like real just a real professional who's like yeah i'll take your script and i'll read your lines because i know we don't have a lot of time to shoot like i feel like tv actors are probably good for this low type of production value 
because well, I mean, Tommy Noonan is better than a TV actor in a lot of respects, but he's also somebody who's probably very used to the idea that like you get a script, you get a script, you memorize your line, you have minimal time to shoot it because you can't do like three days of improv goofing around like in yeah. you know sometimes you get with films, and he's just kind of more like I'm gonna hit my mark every time, I'm gonna say my lines, I know what I'm doing, and I'm like gonna nail this, and I think it's yeah, just a real to- professional. Oh yeah, he's a real professional. And he's like really good. Like I it is honestly kind of surprising if you look back at his career. And he's so good in Manhunter. And maybe if Manhunter is more famous um and like makes more money and is more successful, he would have done more uh I mean he does movies. He does the he's a, he directed a couple of movies that I'd never heard of in the nineties. Well, he's been in a lot of movies I've never heard of in I mean, Manhunter's a big bomb, and then, you know, he has small roles in RoboCop, Last Action Hero, Heat. Um, but, like, you get into the 2000s, and, like, he does, like, this might be his most famous movie of the 2000s, and, like, he does Animalisa and Wonderstruck in the 2010s, and, like, a lot of his other stuff, he, like, you know, short films and something he directed that doesn't have a Wikipedia page, but, like, mostly he did, like, a lot of TV, um, 17 episodes here, 13 episodes there. It was in Tom Hanks' classic, The Man with One Red Shoe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the worst Tom Hanks films of the 1980s. <laughs> pretty boring. Um, yeah. No, he's just like, I wish. The kind of a Charlie Kaufman guy in a way, too, because he was in Synecdoche as well, um, which is kind of a great place for his vibe and his energy. He does have good energy. I think it's honestly kind of surprising that more directors were not like trying to grab him um, for stuff. Like I feel like he he has intermittently worked with famous directors, and then most of the time just gets really stuck in just kind of like sort of crappy, not very interesting. He's just like a real professional actor, just like taking gigs where they are, and every now and then there's a a great project they can be passionate about and dive into. But even this is probably just like a job. For him. Yeah, I mean, he's still working up to 2018 was his last TV credit, 2017 his last, but I don't know if he's um, officially retired or anything. Uh, his IMD picture has cracked me up for like years because I've looked, I've, I don't know, I've, I, I know him since Anomalisa because it's like, who's the person doing all these weird voices for his female characters? Um, but his character is very, like, such the head of someone who doesn't realize this isn't cool anymore. Um, I don't know if we're going to get flagged for me showing IMD pictures, but no, I, I just looked it up. That is pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, he has a lot of like wearing hats that like look a slightly too large for his head. Um, <laughs> several pictures I've seen in, uh, of him with different hats. Yeah, he's very talented. Um, I enjoy him in this. This is like a weird movie to talk about because, in some respects, the what it's homaging or playing on is more interesting to talk about than the actual actions of the film. Yeah, like it's a very the plot is very slight in the way that I said a lot of the movies at this time were. It really is. There's a woman goes to this house to babysit, finds out that it, there's some line involved is babysitting for an old woman, and then she just like creeps around their house while creepy shit happens until she gets impregnated by the devil scene. The movie is 95 minutes long. It yeah. legitimately does not Oops. get... I don't think Gerwig is killed till near fifty minutes into the movie. That's the first like scary thing to really happen. I don't think I don't think there's anything satan I don't think the satanic stuff happens to like eighty or eighty-five minutes into the movie. Like this movie is And then it goes really quick for five minutes. And honestly, it might have been the reason that the film didn't like blow up. I mean, part of that might have been just the distribution, but also like I feel like this would have been a hard movie to um to sell just because you 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 could sell audiences aren't patient anymore well yeah you could sell this movie as like a haunted house movie but if your audiences go to this movie wanting a haunted house movie they're gonna be like i have to wait 85 minutes into this movie to get the haunted house stuff because you can't Um, even make a trailer for this i think i've talked to you before how much i hate horror trailers because you need like 10 scares and loud noises and the movie doesn't have it to like promote that without showing the ending how do you promote the movie being terrifying or you need interesting locations, and by side the house, yeah. you don't really have any interesting locations. Um, I would imagine a, a trailer for this would include a shot of 
the son walking up to Gerwig's car, the house, yeah. maybe maybe part of the phone call, I guess you could put in a trailer, like overlying some yeah. other images. In so a way, I, it's almost like the anti-Blumhouse. Like Blumhouse also, you know, um, kind of an independent, or at least a low, not independent, but a low budget um, studio. They, they, they really made their money by making horror movies on the cheap and then making lots of profit. But Blumhouse is going by almost a formula of how can we promote this movie? Um, you know, how can we make a trailer to get people to see it? And there has to be so many like scares um, and tropes involved when this is like just not trying to like please the masses as I think Blumhouse is in a way. Yeah, Blumhouse is really good at being like, what do people like and yeah. what will make how, money? I mean, yeah. they let their directors do stuff with them. But like, if you look through their entire career, I don't mean that as a dig, but it's definitely the goal of the company. No, but there's but there are producers involved who are saying stuff like we need to make sure this is functional. I mean, freaking Paranormal Activity, their first ever movie, which was made for fifteen thousand dollars, and they spent an additional two hundred fifteen thousand post production, made nearly two hundred million dollars. That's yeah. how they built their studio, and in some ways, you know, you can say that. Ty West doesn't, um, you know, he does like his thing, but like, if we're being honest, um, Blumhouse has done way more for horror as a genre than Ty West has because their movies have been seen by hundreds of times more number of people. It's they've became a name outside of like the main studios or the like two distributors of the biggest name would be A24 and then Blumhouse. I'm fascinated. I will, I will say I'm very fascinated to see, and we've kind of sort of moved past the film at this point. I am fascinated to see what X, the Ty West film with A24 distributing is going to be. Mm -hmm. That to me feels like that's the Ty West chance to, to break out the way he wants to break out. It's not asking him to do a franchise movie and do like the third sequel or something. It's saying you can make an original story. Wasn't the value of, of violence in A24 movie though? Because I feel like it was. No, it's a Blumhouse film. Oh, it is a Blumhouse. Oh, the connections. You're amazing. It is. And a part of the reason I think it's taken him so long to direct after that one is that and movie is not very good. Well, I mean, take that out of it. Forget the quality. That movie is an atrocious bomb. That movie is like, that is like, that is a legitimate career ender. That is a movie where he is controlled. He's in charge of everything. That was his jump to doing something a little more higher budget. He has, he has a studio behind him. He has four name actors in his film. Um, yeah. and it may and it grows $61,000. And he still seems like he's going to something more that route, not going back to something like this or the innkeepers or the sacrament, which I, in a way, I feel like could be eaten up by streaming sites or like Shutter. He should be just be like whether it's go to Shutter guys. I think the problem is that Shutter probably wants something that they do not have a budget. No, and that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I think they want something that might actually seen a little more it feels like he you know i liked this but i also can understand why somebody why it would be i think relatively easy for somebody to kind of wash away his entire career like his entire career seems to be, to be a director who is critically well regarded but like publicly sort of rejected consistently and i and i just can very much understand if you watch this movie you can understand why a mainstream but I think has a real cult fan base i think all three of the real indie ones of this innkeepers and sacrament have like a fan base. Yeah. But you can also understand watching this, why a mainstream horror audience who has seen conjuring films and James Wan goes to a theater, sits down to watch this and goes, yeah, I'm not seeing one of his movies again. Cause it's like, wait, it's much slower and it takes a really, really long time. And it's like, you know, it's not as necessarily exciting. Like, there's a large gap on almost all his movies between the critical response and the audience. response. usually like 30 points of difference this is the only one of his films that the audience actually liked if you look at like rotten tomatoes um yeah i think we talked about uh house of the devil zach give me final thoughts anything else on house of the devil ty west no uh, before i mean even though i like i like this movie i don't love this movie and that um i am kind of interested just you know these indie horror directors and ty west in general and then as halloween approaches i can see myself maybe trying to finish off some of his career I've seen. I like I kinda wanna watch Innkeepers. I and watch VHS I've never seen. And that seems like a good way to spend my Halloween. And then I have a full picture of kind of his early career. I have seen the sacrament and you'd probably really dig it. 
Yeah, I want to see that. I looked at. The, I was looking at the descriptions of his films, and that was the one that, that leaned out to me. I am interested to watch more of his stuff. I'm interested to see, like, I'm interested to see if he can like really impress me with anything. Because this was a movie that I was, I, I was not finding a ton to criticize, but I also was not finding it not a lot. I was really like standing up and applauding. Um, it was like it was well done, but not particularly impressive. So I'm interested to see what his career is like. Uh, besides this, um, next week we're taking a very different tact. Uh, from this film rather than a guy who started with you know very little money making movies he had fully control on um, we're going to talk about a director who really who started with more of a budget and talking and Blum, Blumhouse who I just Blum, trashed on <laughs> well I mean we don't really trash on Blumhouse I think yeah. we just made a, a, a fair comparison which is they, they would probably more. say the same thing about themselves which is a, yeah their goal is their attempt is to make low budget movies and um make a lot of money and in the case of the movie we're gonna talk about it's a movie that not only made a crap load of money a ridiculous increase on its budget made a career is made a career and um made several careers if we're being completely honest yeah and um is one of the highest acclaimed horror films of all time um next week we're doing it we're talking jordan peele we're talking get out um, one of our we'll big be, ones. We often try to avoid the bigger obvious picks, but we're going for it. Yeah, it was, we we often, yeah, as Zach said, we oftentimes look at directors and say, let's pick the movies that are talked about less. Let's pick something that's you know, a little bit off the beaten path. We oftentimes have um, interesting takes or strong feelings about lesser known movies from people. But I, I, I love Get Out. And uh, I was like, yeah, let's just do it. It's going to be amazing. That movie is great. Um and I feel like this is, I feel like you like, you love this movie too, love, yeah. which is weird for, you're not a horror guy. So like, horror you guy. loving a horror movie is, uh, is, is a real, you know, you, you know, feather in its cap. Um, yeah. Next week we're talking Get Out. Um, we were going to put guests on and they were like, fuck it. We just want to talk about Get Out. Um, we're going <laughs> to, we're not going to have any problem talking for a while about Get Out because that movie is not only amazing in every single aspect, but also just fascinating uh, in terms of what it says about society. So next week. We've got get out, get excited. It is coming. Um, with that being said, thank you, Zach, for always being thank, here. Thank you, side. Lucas. Thank you, man. You're the best. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll see you next week, folks. Okay. Peace. Good night. <laughs>